So thank you for the warm welcome. Well, I know, I, obviously, you probably know who these guys are, I'm assuming. <laughs> uh, but we're glad to have Congressman Trey Gowdy with us this morning from the great state of South Carolina, sure. Spartanburg, and obviously my friend, Senator Tim Scott. So would you, again, just welcome these two guys here at the New Life Church. Thank you. Thank you. Have a seat, guys. Thank you. They have uh, just written a book called Unified. It's a, uh, I finished reading it this week, and I was, I was so moved by the stories in the book. And so what we're going to do today, uh, if you came today expecting policy discussions, that's not what this is about. You can watch Fox or CNN, when they, and they talk about those things. But today, we're going to tackle two very important topics. One is we're going to talk about the, uh, the, the conflict, the the vitriol that has infected our political system, in my opinion. We're going to talk about how to create a unified conversation around very difficult things. And then secondly, we're going to talk about racial reconciliation. Both these men are from South Carolina. They have uh, powerful stories of how they've embraced and addressed this issue in their community. And I think it's gonna be super helpful today for us to hear them talk about that. So guys, welcome Thank you. so much. They were in town last night for a uh, meeting at uh, a local hotel um, and I asked them to stay over on a Saturday morning and they graciously accepted. So we're glad to have you. Uh, I'd like to hear from both of you, Congressman Gowdy, why you wrote the book. Uh, what, what motivated you to write a book on unity uh, with your friend, ten, uh, Senator Scott. Can, I'd just like to hear from both of you what, what stirred in your heart and motivated you to write the book. Well, first of all, thank you for letting me go first because once United States senators get started, it is hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the number one thing that led to the writing of this book. And the truth will set you free, by the way. <laughs> There is that. <laughs> he was going to walk away, but he didn't, didn't, did not deny the truth of what I said. <laughs> um, he has such a compelling life narrative that I find uh, inspirational. Um, his grandfather picked cotton in South Carolina, uh, never learned to read, and yet he has a grandson that's picking out a seat in the United States Senate. And he grew up in a single-parent household... And I wanted him very much to write his story, but he has that quality that I find so hard to abide, which is humility. And he would not write a story about himself. He said, let's do one together. I, I like contrast. I like the fact that we all don't want to eat at the same restaurant at exactly the same time. I like that we don't all go to the same bar barber. <laughs> so you actually go to a barber? I do go to a barber, yes, believe it or not. I pay a lot of money for this. But I think the conflict is, um, is really hurting our country. Um, and there's a difference between contrast and conflict. Jesus um, not only broke down barriers, whether it's racial, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's religious. I mean, you just look at the interactions he had with people, and there's not a barrier that you can construct that he did not break down. And that's in addition to building bridges. So those are two separate things. You're breaking down barriers and you're also building bridges. I, I, I get that people have deeply held convictions. I live with a 21-year-old socialist. 
that would be my daughter, not my wife. My wife is not 21, although she looks like it, and she is not a socialist. But my daughter has a wildly different political views from mine. And there's no one in the world that I love more than her. So we've got to be able to have relationships with people that don't look like us, that don't even believe what we believe. Keep the contrast. It's healthy in a pluralistic society, but get rid of the conflict because it's just so debilitating. Senator Scott, you, yeah. you talk about some of the same. I love the, the we're going to dive deeper into what you just sure. said in just a moment, but what motivated you to write a book? What, what made it motivated you to tackle this topic when you're still in the political fray? We know that uh, Congressman Gowdy has announced that you're not running for re-election. You're going to go back into private practice in South Carolina. You are still very much in the middle of the D.C. chaos. Absolutely. And what motivated you to write this book? It is hard to make friends in D.C. Uh, typically, the, the old saying is, if you want a friend in D.C., buy a dog. <laughs> You're not going to find one in D.C. And so when we arrived in Congress together in 2010 for the, uh, for the first series of meetings, I didn't know him. Uh, so fast forward through you know, 40 or 50 dinners a week, two years, three years. And then we were faced in our state with a church shooting, uh, the Mother Emanuel church shooting. Uh, Trey and I had dinner that night. And I went back to my room, my apartment, and I was laying on my bed, and I get a call from the police, and I hear there's a church shooting at the church where my uncle attended for 50 years. And the first person I turned to was a white guy from a state where when we were kids, we could not play together. We wouldn't have been able to stay at the same hotel eat at the same restaurants, or drink from the same water fountain. But yet, 50 years later, after a racially motivated shooting at a church, and the goal of the shooter was to start a race war, I turned to this guy for comfort, for a rock. And it wasn't that night. It was literally a month or so later when I realized how good God is and how much had changed and I felt like the world would benefit from understanding and appreciating while there may be differences in how we see the world, where we come from, our philosophy. But if there is something so incredible, like a worldview, a biblical worldview, that balances this relationship, that keeps us strong, maybe that's something we ought to write about. I, I find it really refreshing as a citizen, first of all, uh, that both of you are so bold about your faith that you don't hide the fact that you're Christ followers. Uh, I want to hear from both of you. How did you how did you find Christ? Can you just share that? I think we're an audience that would appreciate hearing that story. That not only did you do you just name Christ. As, I mean, a lot of people use the name of Jesus for their own benefit, but you guys have a deeply personal, uh, very public relationship with Jesus that I find really refreshing. How did you find Senator Scott? We'll start with you. Um, how did you find Jesus? Well, I had the good fortune of being raised in a, in a Christian household. My, my grandmother and my mother were very faithful believers, particularly my, my, my grandmother. So we had to go to church every Sunday. And my grandmother told me I 
get to go to church <laughs> every Sunday. Come on. And uh, it, it, I didn't necessarily buy it completely, but as a senior in high school, I had a major car accident where I fell asleep driving. I went through the windshield, uh, found myself on the side of the road, uh, could have been dead. Uh, and my friend at work was sharing with me, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I remember in the midst of that car accident, as my back hit the windshield and I was holding on to the steering wheel to stay in the car, I yelled for Jesus. And you would think I would get saved that day. But as Trey has said, senators are slow. <laughs> even before they become senators. <laughs> Thank you, God. <laughs> so literally a year later, uh, on a small, tiny football scholarship to Presbyterian College in South Carolina, uh, I was practicing, and all of that just flashed back at an FCA meeting and on September 22nd of that year, I got on my knees and said, what a fool I've been. And accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And it changed the direction of my life mm. from football to leadership and switched colleges and came home and started working on Christian leadership. Well, let me just brag on Senator Scott. I met you about four or five years ago at church. Yes. I was speaking at a church in South Carolina, and your pastor is a friend of mine, Greg Surratt, who has spoken here for us at New Life. And I love the fact that before I scheduled today's meeting that I could call your pastor, and he said, yes, do this meeting. <laughs> but the fact that I could call a U.S. senator's pastor who knew you and, and, and gave you the thumbs up. I, I, listen, if every U.S. senator had a pastor that I could call, I think we'd be in a better condition right now. Do you agree with that? Amen. Come Amen. on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Congressman Gowdy, uh, you went to Baylor University. Yes, sir. But grew up in South Carolina. How did you find Jesus? How did Jesus find you? I grew up shockingly similar to the story he just described, although you have to add in Sunday night and Wednesday night. <laughs> it was just never, you know, I, I can't remember, I can't count the number of times we would come in late from going to a college football game, which is another religion in South Carolina. <laughs> right. And there was never any discussion that my father and mom were going to get my three sisters and me up and that we were going to go to church and we were going to go back, despite the fact the Cowboys were playing in the late game on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> we were going back that night. Um, so I, quote, joined the church um, during vacation Bible school while my parents were out of town. Uh, <laughs> My sister told me not to do it. She said, do not walk forward. And I said, well, I feel like walking forward. So I joined the church uh, as a kid, but as uh, most believers encounter at some point or another, as I, I, I guess the Irish poets call it the dark night of the soul. Mm. When you get old enough to start asking um, questions of yourself and I remember uh, being in a lake house. I had just finished college, and I was by myself, and I flipped on television and was watching a Billy Graham crusade and had one of those dark nights of the soul where you are not only looking for a savior at the end, you're looking for a Lord and a model for the duration of your life. Amen. And there's a verse that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And uh, Kierkegaard then wrote a book, Fear and Trembling. I, I battle cynicism. I, I, I battle, which is why I so much need him 
and my wife and others in my life that, that are optimists, that are hopeful, because I, I, I battle the cynicism of seeing terrible things and wondering like the prophet Habakkuk, God, where are you? And how do you let this happen? I assure myself by the fact that at least I'm asking God these questions. I'm not asking someone else. So it's a struggle for me to, to, to battle cynicism. Um, but you would expect someone who grew up in the criminal justice system and saw man's inhumanity toward man for 20 years um, to have to find glimpses of, of God's grace and love wherever you can find it. So I needed a savior, but I more importantly... At that point in my life, I needed a model that I could uh, structure my life around. That's powerful. Both these guys, by the way, are Dallas Cowboy fans. Before you cheer, okay, just want to let you know this. We pull for the same team invited. God pulls for. <laughs> now we got half the crowd's about to walk out on you. This is Brian. Yeah, those, uh, yeah. This is they don't care about your politics, but you better root for the right team, right? Uh, <laughs> I was hoping Bronco that was country. the last question of the day. <laughs> uh, well, we'll get to, I wanted to get it out of the way, get the tension out of the air, because they were wondering who you really rooted for. Yes, sir. I want to dive into your book, and uh, I did read the book, and about, it took me about three days. It was like an easy read. I thought, I was telling uh, Congressman Gowdy how I, I was uh, surprised at how vulnerable both of you were in this book, how uh, honest you were and transparent, and, which is uh, really refreshing, quite honestly. I think you let us inside uh, your emotions and feelings and thoughts about big issues of the day. Um, I want to start with you, Senator Scott. Uh, I'm gonna, this is right out of the book. You said, we have retreated into our own echo chambers and you were diagnosing the problem in politics and in our nation. You said, we've retreated into our own echo chambers. We've divided ourselves by religion, by race, and by relativity. Uh, we are divided by gender, geography, and ideology. I want you, I want you from both of you, uh, would you explain, in your opinion, how did we get to this place? How did our country become so divided where we can't even have... Uh, honest conversations. Why have we become so combative in our politics? How did we get here? I think most of the time we spend a lot of time, especially in politics, looking to the future. But as Christians, I think we have a responsibility to resolve ourselves to the past. Uh, there are two, I think, important distinctions. Living in the past and learning from the past. Too often our, our country, and especially when it comes to division or divisiveness, wants to live in the past. I want to learn from the past. I can't hold him responsible for something that he's not responsible for. Mm. But in politics, it is the best way. Divide and conquer means you can succeed. It only leaves you with a country that is worse off. Mm. So part of the challenge that I think we face as leaders, as faithful leaders, especially in the political realm, is to have honest, clear conversations that takes the tribes within the country and we erase those lines. Because according to Galatians 3.29, we've been adopted into the same family, period. Yeah. So I ought to treat you like you're my brother. Yeah. We may not always agree, and frankly, in my family, I bet two-thirds of my family vote more Democrat than they do Republican. But I love each and every one of them. And we've arrived at a time where we even question the intentions of individuals. Mm. I don't know what's in your heart or your mind. Most of us have the same goal for our families. We should focus on what we have in common. And that gives us rapport and credibility before we bridge to the contrast. 
Mm. Congressman Gowdy, how did we get here? Well, t Tim and my wife have both been very helpful in um, getting me to not just diagnose the problem, but also suggest a solution, because um, I like to dwell on the problem more. I'll give you the solution at the very end. I think the problem's a couple of factors. Number one, we figured out how to monetize people's conflict uh, and the division. And you can make a lot of money within the political subculture by appealing to people's anger and frustration and fear. Um, you can have a really successful career in politics or on the periphery of politics and the media um, with constantly finding breaking news, constantly finding something that pits one group of Americans against another group of Americans. So we figured out how to monetize it. We also have convinced ourselves that winning is really the only virtue worth pursuing, that it doesn't matter how we get there. It doesn't matter if we run negative ads. It doesn't matter if we misrepresent someone's record. And this is true on both sides. We've convinced ourselves that the fate of the country hangs in the balance such that we begin to rationalize everything we do because winning is the only virtue worth pursuing. It is um, not lost on me how little Jesus said about politics. Um, and it is also not lost on me that the church should be leading the reconciliation in our country. Because yeah. if you're waiting, if you are waiting on us in Washington, we reflect society. We do not lead it. Yeah. We react to society. We do not lead it. So the church should be leading. And uh, one of the things you will see that I appropriate a political connotation to is when Christ said, or it was said of Christ, in him there is no Jew, no Gentile, there is no male, no female. I don't think it'd be much of a stretch for him to add there is no black, white, or brown, there is no Democrat, Republican. The church, um, there, I, there are believers that believe in the death penalty. There are believers that don't believe in the death penalty. There are believers that think the tax rate ought to be 36. There are believers that think the tax rate ought to be 34. How we can divide our country over issues like that, um, I, I would rather us find, even if it's just a kernel of unity, and then build a relationship around that, and then that frees you up to have a conversation about the other stuff but every night when we go home, we flip on something that validates or ratifies what we already believe, and rarely do we have a chance to hear the other side of the story. And that's the echo chamber effect that you're talking about, that we tend to retreat to our tribes and listen to what uh, we agree with instead of sitting down and listening to the other perspective. And that's, you talk about this in your book, both of you talk about the importance of building trust. That, that we've broken trust with one another. We, really, we don't like each other, and we don't, which means we don't trust one another. Uh, in your book, you mentioned that having meals together uh, was the key for the two of you, which by the way, for 2,000 years, the local church has seen the greatest advances in culture because of hospitality because of sharing meals together. So this is, not a, this is not a lost art in the church. This is the core of who, what we believe. So you said uh, having meals together was the key for the two of you to build trust. How different would our world be? And I just want both of you to give us a challenge right now. Tell us about a meal. Tell us about a relationship that the two of you have brokered over a meal. 
um, with people that were different than you and, uh, and how tough it was. We, I don't think, I think if it was easy, we would all be doing it. But can you tell us how to do this and, and how the two of you have done this in Washington? You know, the, the only hard part is the ask. Uh, my experience has been once you sit down, I mean, think of, of, of sitting on an airplane beside a stranger who cannot read your body language when you're trying to send the signal that you do not want to talk and they persist <laughs> in talking to you, you immediately go to something, whether it's sports, whether it's family, whether it's what do you do for a living, you're searching. It's, just, it's almost like you are searching for something you have in common so you can survive the next two hours on an airplane. You don't, you don't go to religion for the most part. You don't go to politics. You go to something where you can connect. Joey Kennedy is one of my favorite colleagues. We write a section on Tulsi Gabbard, who is a progressive from Hawaii, who is of another faith. Kristen Sinema from, from, from Arizona, Peter Welch is an unabashed progressive from Vermont. When you agree to sit down, sometimes we talk politics, and every now and again, what Senator Scott said is exactly right. We actually wanna to get to exactly the same place. We just have very different views on how to get there but that's a start. The real key is we don't talk about politics. I, 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 we talk about anything other than politics. Then you build the trust, you build the relationship. So if a Joey Kennedy comes and says, look, I know you can't support this in your district, your voters don't want it, but can we work together on this issue? Can we work together on mental health? That's something that's very important to him. Yeah, Joey, we can find a niche here that we can do something together, but you cannot question each other's motives, and it is really hard to hate something you know, and it's impossible to hate something that is sitting in front of you on a regular basis. We're just not wired to hate something that's that close to us, but if you never have the conversation and you never have the meal, the hard thing to do, Pastor, is to find somebody that does not look, act, believe, and just say, you know what? There's a game Saturday. I got an extra ticket. We do not have to solve health care. We just have to find our seats and go enjoy the next couple of hours. That's a small lift. That's great. I love that. Uh, I think that's powerful, super powerful. I love that in, in the story of Jesus that he often had meals with sinners, that Jesus modeled this. Jesus, in fact, frustrated the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day because he would actually have meals with tax collectors, which were the politicians of their day. He would have meals with people that were unlike the Pharisees, unlike the church people, but he would walk past them to go sit down with uh, the sinners. Uh, Senator Scott, would you speak to this as well? Tell me about some meetings you've had uh, that made you hopeful that unity could happen in D.C.? I always think that following a formula helps a little bit. So first looking for rapport, then credibility before you present problems. Because without rapport and credibility, chances are you're not gonna have a conversation on contrast, you're gonna have a conversation that leads to conflict. One of the things that I found to be very helpful in Washington is I attend a Bible study with the chaplain of the Senate, and we have a couple of Democrats and a couple of Republicans who are there all the time. And out of that Bible study, I actually get more calls from those two members who are in the Bible study who are Democrats looking for solutions from a legislative standpoint. Because the common bond that happens when you're in constant fellowship is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, 
send for James Langford from Oklahoma, who was a youth pastor. He had like 60,000 kids coming to his youth camps in Oklahoma. Uh, he and I worked on something called Sunday Solutions, asking people from different cultures or races to invite someone who's not like you, as Trey just said, into your home just to break bread. And what we constantly find is that 80% of the time, you have 80% of the things in common. All you actually need to do is ask someone. Mm. And when that happens, it's a miracle. People leave wanting to do it again and again and again. And at a church this size or Seacoast in South Carolina, you could always find someone who loves the same Lord and who sees life completely different than you do mm. if you're willing to listen before talking. I, I love that you both mentioned meals and prayer. When you eat together and pray together, that this is what breaks down political barriers. Isn't that fascinating that it's that simple? And yet we've made it more complex than that. I wanna pivot on to another topic that you guys cover in this book, and that's the issue of racial reconciliation. Uh, there was a shooting, as you mentioned earlier, at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. We were all grieved when we heard of the young man that went into a, really a Bible study and opened fire on a Wednesday night there. Um, that was a tragic and pivotal moment for the two of you. Both of you are from your, your hometown is Charleston, South Carolina. Your uncle went to church at this church for, you said, 50 years. Yes. And you're, you know that area really well, that downtown area. I've, I've walked by that church. I know that church too. Um, can you tell us how this formed your deep friendship? How, what did that do uh, between the two of you? Uh, how did that shape the friendship that we see on the stage today? Well, I'm gonna let Tim handle the racial perspective because I have never been a person of color for a moment in my life. And I have no idea what it feels like to hear that nine fellow believers were murdered simply because of the color of their skin. I don't know what it's like to be stopped because of the color of my skin. I don't know what it's like to be asked for ID while the person before and after me was not asked for ID. I have no idea what that feels like. Where he helped me was with my cynicism because I was angry because you know, my, my, my preacher and all the other preachers, they say God's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, whatever purpose you wanted to come out of this shooting, you could have accomplished another way. You didn't have to do it this way. So um, I was angry. And I never heard anger from him. And that's what led me to go to another church in search of some of that common anger, which is not what I found uh, when I went there. Um, but Tim's faith is not a part of his life. It is the theme that runs through every facet of his life. And if ever there was a time to say, this has rattled my faith, that these people did exactly what you told them in your word to do, to welcome strangers, to pray for strangers, to welcome people who need help, and, the, and to pray with them. And the result was that they lost their lives. Um, he helps me from a faith standpoint, which trumps every other way you can help someone. 
that had to be a devastating day for you. You talk about it very personally in your book about getting the phone call. Oh, my goodness. And the fact that you have family connected to that church, the fact that it was racially motivated. I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, past, uh, Senator, I call you Pastor, Senator Tim, uh, was when he first went into Congress, represented the district, Charleston, Absolutely. where the Civil War began. Fort Sumter is in, out, right outside Charleston. It's in the, the harbor there, the bay. Absolutely. And so you represented the district where the Civil War began. It is deeply, deeply rooted in the racial history of our country. And this had to just bring back incredible pain for you and the black community in Charleston and in South Carolina. Can you speak to that, the emotions you must have been going through when this happened? Yeah, quite, quite difficult. It is impossible to put in words or even context the depth of pain and suffering that led to disillusionment uh, that night. Uh, especially when you think about the fact that Dylan Roof drove 100 miles to come to that church to ignite a race war. You have to really fully appreciate the South and Charleston and our provocative history on race. Uh, before 1877, I think it was, or 1850s, 75%, three out of four slaves came through Charleston. So we are, we are a city and a state steeped in racial controversy and hostility. Now the place, the, there, there's actually a museum in downtown Charleston, because I've been there a few times, where they process the slaves getting off the ships from Africa and the Caribbean. Absolutely. And that's only a few blocks from Mother Emanuel Church. Walking distance you can walk there. Five, mile, five minutes. So the fact that this is where most of the slaves came in on ships from Africa, they came in, that's where they were auctioned off. Yes. This church was the first black church in the state of South Carolina. Is that right? Or one of the first? One of the first. And the pastor there uh, in 18, in the 19th century was actually hung because he was uh, cited as part of a black slave rebellion. Yeah, Bessie. So this church is deeply rooted in this conflict. Incredibly. Uh, you think about the church that births other African-American churches. This is, that's why they call it Mother Emanuel Church because it birthed so many black churches around the country and specifically at home in South Carolina. So to, so to have someone walk into that place, it's, it's a violation and a cutting to the soul. But the goal of sparking a racial riot was blunted within 36 hours because the family members all walked into court and publicly and consciously forgave mm. Dylan Roof. And so what was meant to start a race war in the home of the Civil War led to the greatest reunification of the state of South Carolina that we have ever seen. We have battled with the Confederate flag for, since 1960s. It came down in about 17 days from the top of our capital because black folks and white folks joined hands together and looked for a way to send a signal to the rest of the world that here is a place where hope lives. And Matthew 5:44, pray for those who persecute you, those who want to take you out. That's my version. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough. <laughs> and and we, we, we saw 
We saw the love of Jesus rise to the occasion. But the, the racial conflict that had been there, that had been in all of our hearts, whether we learned to deal with it and learn from it or learn to deal with it by living in it, we found very quickly a way for us to separate ourselves from that. But having been raised in, you know, born and raised in, in South Carolina and in Charleston, even as an elected official, being stopped seven times by law enforcement officers for what we term as driving while black was something that was just so humiliating for folks like myself. Walking into the Capitol as an African-American United States Senator with my Senate pin on, which is how they recognize you if they don't know your face, and being stopped and asked for ID and once having physically someone put their hands on me in the Capitol to stop me from coming in. Those things build up, they're deposits, they're emotional deposits. And it can lead to an explosive reaction. One of the reasons why rapport and credibility is so important, especially on the issue of race, is if we're not careful, that toxicity or the corrosive nature of it all can boil over into the public forum and then it feeds on itself, which is dangerous for this country. I believe that one of the greatest national security threats to America is the social discord in our country. Wow. That is a powerful statement you just made there. And I thought one of the most powerful stories in the book, quite honestly, uh, was uh, Congressman Gowdy, your story of walking into an all-black church, a mostly black church, the Sunday after the shooting at Mother Emanuel. You wanted to go to a church and express your anger. You thought that you would bump into an angry group of people. And a young couple met you at the door and did something that was counter cultural that was revolutionary in your mind. Can you tell us what happened to you that morning and why it changed your life? I'll try. It's hard for me to get through it without um, getting emotional, um, but I'll try. Um, I had a relationship with a pastor, to Tim's point about, you know, you can't begin a relationship the day something bad happens. It has to exist. But Charles J.J. Jackson and I were friends throughout the time that I was the district attorney, so I woke up and told my wife, I'm just going to go to his church. I just figured, you know, incredibly eloquent speaker that he was going to capture the, the history of our state, the, the anger. I, I just said, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go listen to a black man talk this morning. And I went to the vestibule, and this is a beautiful young couple, and they greeted me. And this is the Sunday after a stranger had gone to an all-black church in Charleston. So there's just hours had passed, days had passed. And I walked in and they greeted me and said, you know, are you a visitor? Yes, ma'am, I'm a visitor. Do you have anybody to sit with? No, ma'am. But the whole time I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, my dad was a pediatrician in town. My wife is the most popular person in town. <laughs> I am I'm Ms. Spartanburg. Ms. Spartanburg. I'm a <laughs> district attorney. They know who I am. And so we go and their children come and we're sitting on a pew, and I hope Blackley stops by, who's a friend, the clerk of court. She says, thank you so much for being here. And then another friend stops by and says, you know, thanks for being here. And finally, the mom finally the mom says, forgive us. We don't, we don't know who you are. But you seem to know 
people at the church. And it dawned on me. They didn't invite me to sit with them because I was a district attorney or because my father was a doctor. They invited me to sit with them days after another white stranger had shown up unexpectedly at a black church. They did it because they just thought that was the right thing to do. So then I think, okay, well, I'm not getting it from them. Hopefully, Charles Jackson's going to give me what I came for. <laughs> and he gave me the opposite. It's about love and hope and forgiveness. And so I did not get what I wanted that morning, but I got what I needed that morning, but not what I wanted that morning. And the reason I included it in the book is, you know, it is hard for the white people who have not experienced all of what Tim just described, it is hard for us to relate to it, but it does not mean you should not make an effort yes. to relate to it to the extent you can. But I remain blown away that a young mother of color would welcome a white stranger to sit by her kids days after Dylan Roof did it. That is, that's above politics, that's above that, that's, that is a spiritual thing that leads you to do that. Yeah, so good, so good. Both of y'all talk about, uh, and we're gonna, in just a moment, by the way, we're gonna leave room for some questions. So uh, where are the microphones for questions? Right here. So we're gonna, what we're gonna do is if you want, if you have a question, let me just stop just for a moment. We're, don't ask policy questions today, okay? If you wanna know about uh, some bill or law, then email their office. But today is, we're talking about these two issues today. So if you, if you wanna directly ask these guys a question, we're gonna, if you'll form a line here by Santa Claus, right here, my friend, uh, <laughs> who I love, by the way, uh, uh, right here, if you'll form a line right by there, uh, we're gonna take questions in just a moment. You'll need to get up and walk over there and, and form a line if you have a question for these two guys. We're gonna take about 15 minutes to answer questions. But both of you mentioned the justice system and how uh, your role as lawmakers, um, that all of these racial issues in our country have made you look at laws and how they're being unfairly applied. The drug law, for example, how they're being unfairly applied and are devastating the minority community because of their application. Can both of y'all speak to, to a solution here? What can we do as citizens and what can lawmakers do to make sure that laws are justly applied uh, to both black and white uh, and, and to every person in our culture? Well, I would ask my fellow citizens, number one, uh, kind of rethink one precept and then kind of adopt a precept. So rethink um, something can be completely benign in its intention. You have no discriminatory intent whatsoever. But as time progresses, the impact, the effect has a discriminatory effect. You cannot be blind to the effect even though your intent may have been more than okay. It may have been noble. I'll give you an example. The pharmacological distinction between cocaine powder and cocaine base, which is also known as crack, is baking soda. That is the pharmacological distinction between those two substances. Now, I'm not a huge fan of baking soda, 
but I don't think it's criminal to buy it, and I don't think it's criminal to use it, and my wife sticks it in the refrigerator from time to time for reasons that defy logic. (laughs) But yet the penalty was 100 to 1, 100 times more severe for a drug that was predominantly sold and used within communities of color as opposed to cocaine powder. So you have no pharmacological distinction at all. The penalty is 100 times more severe. That is really hard to explain to a 17 or 18-year-old person of color why you are going to go to jail for five sweet and low packets of a substance while someone with a half a kilo of that same substance, minus the baking soda, is going to be probation eligible. That is very hard to explain. In fact, you should not try to explain it. What we should say is, I know what our motive was. I know what our intent was. That's not been manifest. So we have to revisit and ask you to to embrace something in our justice system, and it is proportionality. You will never find anyone less interested in criminal justice reform as it relates to violent crime. I have no interest in having the conversation. I was a homicide prosecutor. I did child rape cases. I have no interest in discussing reforming the penalties when people hurt other people. But when I walk out of a courtroom in a drug case and that defendant has been sentenced to more time than Susan Smith was sentenced to for drowning her two sons. That is not proportional. There is no comparison between strapping your two sons in their car seats and letting a car roll into a lake. There's no comparison between that and selling controlled substances. Punish them both, but understand the lack of proportionality and how people view This white woman killed two kids and she's eligible for parole. This person of color trafficked in narcotics and they will spend the rest of their life in prison. That is hard to look at that system and say, sign me up. I have total confidence in the criminal justice system. So we got to be willing to say, look, I've got no sympathy in violent crime cases. I'm the wrong guy to talk to. But in economic crimes and in other crimes that don't imbibe an element of violence against other people, we got to get more creative than simply warehousing people. We're just too smart to come up, to not come up with something other than merely warehousing people for 20 years who did not hurt another person. And this is when you hear the the phrase, that's beautiful, I I agree. When When white people especially hear this phrase, systemic racism, it's hard for us to understand what that means, but you just described it. Can you speak to this as well, Senator Scott, from your perspective? Certainly, I'll go to the other side. Trey is as bullish on criminal justice reform as anyone in Congress, even more bullish than I am. I'll look at it from the personal perspective first. As individuals who live in a society, one of the things I believe we all benefit from is taking the time to walk in someone else's shoes. So what Trey and I have done is we've gotten law enforcement officers together with uh, minority community leaders so that they spend some time breaking bread, developing rapport and credibility. And then we ask 
pastors, African-American pastors, to do ride-alongs with cops so that we understand and appreciate that there's no such thing as an ordinary, everyday traffic stop. So that folks who are, from my community, are more sensitive to what a police officer faces in just milliseconds. It's really important for us to be educated from that perspective. It's also very helpful for law enforcement officers to get out the car and spend some time in communities getting to know the people that they're interacting with. When that happens, we find that everything seems to change. We find a path to de-escalating situations and circumstances that could lead to the loss of life. The second thing that I would say from a policymaker's perspective, I'm a huge fan of body cameras. Uh, I have legislation to provide more resources to local law enforcement jurisdictions so that they figure out how to arm their officers with body cameras. Body cameras are not a panacea, but you see what happened. And one of the outrages that we see in current society around the interactions is because we can see it. If, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a, then a film, so to speak, is worth a thousand pictures. So being able to understand and appreciate what happened yourself clears up a lot of challenges. Walter Scott, two months before the church shooting, Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina, was shot in the back by a law enforcement officer who shot him about 15 or 20 yards away, six or seven times in the back, and then laid a taser by the body once he got there. If it were not for a camera, a bot, someone who actually was filming it from the distance, we would never have known what, what, what happened. Yep. So bringing truth to light is incredibly important into solving those problems that too many people are still living in as opposed to learning from. Amen, amen. You guys, uh, thank you so much you. for today. Would you stand with me uh, with they just thank these guys? Yeah. Appreciate for our conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you all. Yes, sir. I'm going to pray for you guys. Okay? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we're in church, and we're in my church, so we're going to pray today, all right? Can we just pray for these guys? And uh, let's just, uh, uh, if you will, let's pray for Trey and for Tim, my friends, as they go back into a very difficult place. They would just pray for wisdom. And the Lord said, if you need wisdom, we should ask for it. And we prayed before we came out, and we're going to pray for them as they leave. But they're going to go right out there and sign books for about 30 minutes, and they have to get back to uh, their jobs. And uh, so if you want to buy a book and have them sign it, I would, as soon as I get through praying, go get in line right there, and they'll be there in five minutes to sign. But let's just pray for these men. I just enjoyed hearing your testimony today and, um, and hearing the deep faith that both of you carry in your hearts. And I'm proud of that, and we're grateful. So let's just pray for these men today. Father in heaven, we thank you for Trey Gowdy. We thank you, Lord, for Tim Scott. And we thank you for finding them, for redeeming them, and for sending them into a very difficult place to do a tough assignment. So Lord, would you fill them with the Holy Spirit? Would you grant them divine wisdom, supernatural wisdom? Would you encourage them and strengthen them for the work and the assignment that you have for them. Would you bless them with every good thing to do your will and your way uh, in, in the world? And Lord, we bless them today. We pray strength over them, their family, their friends. We pray that you would protect them and guard them in every way. And we bless them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And everyone that loves Jesus said, amen. Amen.